Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Imagine packing all of the people in the world into the Great Salt Lake in Utah. We're all jammed shoulder to shoulder, but we've got superpowers and charge past each other at insanely high speeds. That gives you an idea of how densely crowded it is in a typical cell filled with 5 billion proteins. And new discoveries are shedding light on how those cells work. That's next. While you're listening to podcasts, remember to check out the other Quantum Magazine podcast, The Joy of X. Host Stephen Strogatz interviews top-tier scientists and mathematicians. New episodes out now. Also, tell your friends about this podcast and give us a like or follow where you listen. It helps people find the Quantum Magazine podcast. In a busy cell, enzymes need to find their substrates, and signaling molecules need to find their receptors. This allows the cell to carry out the work of growing, dividing, and surviving. If cells were sloshing bags of evenly mixed cytoplasm, that would be hard to do, but they're not. Membrane-bounded organelles help to organize some of the contents. They compartmentalize sets of materials and provide surfaces that enable important processes like the production of ATP, the biochemical fuel of cells. But they're only one source of order. Recent experiments reveal that some proteins spontaneously gather into transient assemblies called condensates. It's a response to molecular forces that balance transitions between the formation and dissolution of droplets inside the cell. Condensates are sometimes referred to as membraneless organelles. They can sequester specific proteins from the rest of the cytoplasm, preventing unwanted biochemical reactions and increasing the efficiency of useful ones. These discoveries are changing our fundamental understanding of how cells work. For instance, condensates may explain the speed of many cellular processes. Here's Anthony Hyman, a cell biologist and a director of the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics in Dresden, Germany. The key thing about a condensate, it's not like a factory, it's more like a flash mob, right? But you turn on a the radio and everyone comes together and you turn it off, everyone disappears. Gary Carpin is a cell biologist at UC Berkeley and the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. This is a mechanism that is exquisitely regulatable. You can form these things and dissolve them quite readily by just changing concentrations of molecules or translational modifications like phosphorylation events or things like mitosis happening. (laughs) Basically, chemically modifying the proteins. This precision provides leverage for control over a variety of other phenomena, including gene expression. The first hint of this mechanism arrived in the summer of 2008. That's when Hyman and his then postdoctoral fellow Cliff Brangwen were teaching at the famed Marine Biological Laboratory and studying the embryonic development of C. elegans roundworms. They observed that aggregates of RNA in the fertilized worm egg formed droplets that could split away or fuse with each other. Hyman and Brangwen hypothesized that these pea granules 
formed through phase separation in the cytoplasm, just like oil droplets in a vinaigrette. Their proposal was published in 2009 in Science, but didn't get much attention at the time. More papers on phase separation in cells trickled out around 2012, including a key experiment in Michael Rosen's lab at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. That study showed that cell signaling proteins can also exhibit this phase separation behavior. By 2015, the stream of papers had turned into a torrent. Since then, there's been a flood of research on biomolecular condensates, these liquid-like cell compartments with both elastic and viscous properties. Now, cell biologists seem to find condensates everywhere they look, in the regulation of gene expression, the formation of mitotic spindles, the assembly of ribosomes, and many more cellular processes in the nucleus and cytoplasm. These condensates aren't just novel, but thought-provoking. The idea that their functions emerge from the collective behaviors of the molecules has become the central concept in condensate biology. The idea contrasts sharply with the classic picture of pairs of biochemical agents and their targets fitting together like locks and keys. Researchers are still figuring out how to study the functionality of these emergent properties. That'll require the development of new techniques to measure and manipulate the viscosity and other properties of tiny droplets in a cell. When biologists were first trying to explain what drives the phase separation phenomenon behind condensation in living cells, the structure of the proteins themselves offered a natural place to start. Well-folded proteins typically have a mix of hydrophilic and hydrophobic amino acids. The hydrophobic amino acids tend to bury themselves inside the protein folds, away from water molecules. The hydrophilic amino acids get drawn to the surface. These hydrophobic and hydrophilic amino acids determine how the protein folds and holds its shape. But some protein chains have relatively few hydrophobic amino acids, so they have no reason to fold. Instead, these intrinsically disordered proteins, known as IDPs, fluctuate in form and engage in many weak multivalent interactions. IDP interactions were thought for years to be the best explanation for the fluid-like droplet behavior. But last year, Branguin published a couple of papers highlighting that IDPs are important. It's clear that disordered proteins are relevant, but it's also clear that the field has kind of gone too far and emphasized them. Branguin says most proteins involved in condensates have a common architecture with some structured domains and some disordered regions. To seed condensates, the molecules must have many weak multivalent interactions with others. There's another way to achieve that, oligomerization. Oligomerization occurs when proteins bind to each other and form larger complexes with repeating units called oligomers. As the concentration of proteins increases, so does the phase separation and the oligomer formation. In a talk at the American Society for Cell Biology meeting in December, Brangwin showed that as the concentration of oligomers increases, the strength of their interactions eventually overcomes the nucleation barrier. That's the energy required to create a surface separating the condensate from the rest of the cytoplasm. 
At that point, the proteins are containing themselves within a droplet. In the past five years, researchers have taken big strides in understanding how this collective behavior of proteins arises from tiny physical and chemical forces, but they're still learning how and whether cells actually use this phenomenon to grow and divide. Condensates seem to be involved in many aspects of cellular biology, but one area that has received particular attention is gene expression and the production of proteins. Ribosomes are cells' protein-making factories, and the number of them in a cell often limits its rate of growth. Work by Brangwen and others suggests that fast-growing cells might get some help from the biggest condensate in the nucleus, the nucleolus, the nucleolus facilitates the rapid transcription of ribosomal RNAs by gathering up all of the required transcription machinery, including the specific enzyme that makes them. A few years ago, Brangwen and his then postdoc, Stephanie Weber, investigated how the size of the nucleolus and therefore the speed of ribosomal RNA synthesis was controlled in early C. elegans embryos. Because the mother worm contributes the same number of proteins to every embryo, small embryos have high concentrations of proteins, and large embryos have low concentrations. And as the researchers reported in a 2015 current biology paper, the size of the nucleoli is concentration-dependent. Small cells have large nucleoli, and large cells have small ones. Brangwen and Weber found that by artificially changing cell size, they could raise and lower the protein concentration and the size of the resulting nucleoli. In fact, if they lowered the concentration below a critical threshold, there was no phase separation and no nucleolus. The researchers derived a mathematical model based on the physics of condensate formation that could exactly predict the size of nucleoli in cells. Now Weber, who is currently an assistant professor at McGill University in Montreal, is looking for condensates in bacteria, which have smaller cells. My hypothesis was this seems like such a ubiquitous phenomenon, and it's based on physics, not like some specially evolved function of a particular cell. I mean, it seemed like it should be a universal general thing. And so I thought maybe bacteria would be a really good place to look because they don't have membrane-bound organelles as an alternative, right? So maybe this is an even more important mechanism for compartmentalization because they don't have an alternative. Last summer, Weber published a study showing that in cells of slow-growing E. coli bacteria, the RNA polymerase enzyme is uniformly distributed, but in fast-growing cells, it clusters in droplets. The fast-growing cells may need to concentrate the polymerase around ribosomal genes to synthesize ribosomal RNA efficiently. This really is phase separation in bacteria. It looks like it is in all domains of life and sort of a universal mechanism that has then been able to specialize into a whole bunch of different functions, but it does seem to be a general property of cells. Although Weber and Brangwen showed that active transcription occurs in one large condensate, the nucleolus, other condensates in the nucleus do the opposite. Large portions of the DNA in the nucleus are classified as heterochromatin because they're more compact and generally not expressed as proteins. In 2017, Carpin, 
Amy Strom, who's now a postdoc in Brangwen's lab, and their colleagues showed that a certain protein will undergo phase separation and form droplets on the heterochromatin and drosophila embryos. These droplets can fuse with each other, possibly providing a mechanism for compacting heterochromatin inside the nucleus. The results also suggested an exciting possible explanation for a long-standing mystery. Years ago, geneticists discovered that if they took an actively expressed gene and placed it right next to the heterochromatin, the gene would be silenced, as if the heterochromatin state was spreading. Here's cell biologist Gary Carpin. And so this phenomenon of spreading was something that arose early on. No one really understood it. Later, researchers discovered enzymes involved in the epigenetic regulation called methyltransferases. They hypothesized that the methyltransferases would simply proceed from one histone to the next, down the DNA strand. This has been the dominant model to explain the spreading phenomenon for the past 20 years. But Carpin thinks that the condensates that sit on the heterochromatin could be products of a different mechanism that accounts for the spreading of the silent heterochromatin state. He says these are fundamentally different ways to think about how the biology works. He's now working to test the hypothesis. Condensates also helped to solve a different cellular mystery, not inside the nucleus, but along the cell membrane. When a type of molecule called a ligand binds to a receptor protein on a cell's surface, it initiates a cascade of molecular changes and movements that convey a signal through the cytoplasm. For that to happen, something first has to gather together all the dispersed players in the mechanism. Researchers now think phase separation might be a trick cells use to cluster the required signaling molecules at the membrane receptor. Lindsay Case trained in the Rosen lab as a postdoc and has started her own lab at MIT. Case says protein modifications that are commonly used for transducing signals change the valency of a protein, meaning its capacity to interact with other molecules. So the modifications also affect proteins' propensity to form condensates. It can seem like a very esoteric experiment to be like combining these modular domains, but if you think about what a cell is doing, it is actually regulating this parameter of valency. Condensates may also play an important role in regulating and organizing the polymerization of small monomer subunits into long protein filaments. In my research, we found that by concentrating this actin regulatory protein to this condensate, you enhance the rate of actin polymerization. It's not by changing the concentration, but by changing the dynamics of the protein. So the molecules stay associated with each other longer within the condensate, and that results in more actin being nucleated because you're bringing molecules together for a longer period of time than you would outside the condensate, and so that favors polymerization. Case found that this action helps specialized kidney cells maintain their unusual shapes. The polymerization of tubulin is key to the formation of the mitotic spindles that help cells divide. Cell biologist Anthony Hyman became interested in understanding the formation of mitotic spindles during his graduate studies in the Laboratory of Molecular Biology at the University of Cambridge in the 1980s. There, he studied how the single-celled C. elegans embryo forms a mitotic spindle before splitting into two cells. 
Now he's exploring the role of condensates in this process. In one in vitro experiment, Hyman and his team created droplets of the microtubule binding tau protein and then added tubulin, which migrates into the tau droplets. When they added nucleotides to the drops to simulate polymerization, the tubulin monomers assembled into beautiful microtubules. Hyman and his colleagues have proposed that phase separation could be a general way for cells to initiate the polymerization of microtubules and the formation of the mitotic spindle. The tau protein is also known for forming the protein aggregates that are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. We got into this thing about disease in the following way. is that, you know, you look at this particular kind of drop, it's like a stress granule. We thought, hmm, that looks all behaviors of liquid-like drops. And so we decided to look at that. Many neurodegenerative conditions like ALS and Parkinson's disease involve the faulty formation of protein aggregates in cells. Here's Hyman. So there's two questions. Why do proteins aggregate and why do they aggregate more as we get older? To investigate how these aggregates might form, Hyman's team focused on a protein that has mutant forms associated with ALS. And so we labeled a protein called fuzz and put it into the genome. And there it is in the nucleus as advertised. Then you stress the cell and the protein leaves the nucleus and goes to the cytoplasm. And in the cytoplasm, it forms into droplets. Hyman's team found that when they made droplets of mutated fuzz proteins in vitro, after only about eight hours, the droplets solidified into what he calls horrible aggregates. The mutant proteins drove a liquid-to-solid phase transition far faster than the normal form of fuzz did. Maybe the question isn't why the aggregates form in disease, but why they don't form in healthy cells. Hyman says one thing he asks at group meetings is why is the cell not scrambled eggs? He says the protein content of the cytoplasm is so concentrated that it should just crash out of solution. A clue came when researchers in Hyman's lab added the cellular fuel ATP to condensates of purified stress granule proteins and saw those condensates vanish. To investigate further, the researchers put egg whites in test tubes, added ATP to one tube and salt to the other, and then heated them. When the egg whites in salt aggregated, the ones with ATP didn't. The ATP was preventing protein aggregation at the concentrations found in living cells. But how? It remained a puzzle until Hyman fortuitously met a chemist when presenting a seminar in Bangalore. The chemist noted that in industrial processes, additives called hydrotropes are used to increase the solubility of hydrophobic molecules. Returning to his lab, Hyman and his colleagues found that ATP worked exceptionally well as a hydrotrope. Intriguingly, ATP is a very abundant metabolite in cells. Most enzymes that use ATP operate efficiently with concentrations much lower. Why, then, is ATP so concentrated inside cells if it isn't needed to drive metabolic reactions? 
Hyman suggests one explanation could be that ATP doesn't act as a hydrotrope below the amount found in cells. He says it's possible that in the origin of life, ATP might have evolved as a biological hydrotrope to keep biomolecules soluble in high concentration and was later co-opted as energy. It's difficult to test that hypothesis experimentally, though, but if the idea is correct, it might help to explain why protein aggregates commonly form in diseases associated with aging, because ATP production becomes less efficient with age. Protein aggregates are clearly bad in neurodegenerative diseases, but the transition from liquid to solid phases can be adaptive in other circumstances. Take primordial oocytes, cells in the ovaries. All the oocytes, like immature egg cells, are formed before birth. And these cells actually remain in the female body until menopause. So if you think of it, they have a lifespan of 40 to 60 years. So they are very, very long-lived cells. And upon activation, they grow and mature into an egg. And if the egg is lucky enough to be fertilized, a new baby is born. That's Elvon Buka a cell and developmental biologist at the Center for Genomic Regulation in Barcelona. Each of these cells has a Balbiani body, a large condensate of amyloid protein found in the oocytes of organisms ranging from spiders to humans. The Balbiani body is believed to protect mitochondria during the oocyte's dormant phase by clustering a majority of the mitochondria together with long amyloid protein fibers. Here's Buka again. If you think of all the organelles as we know, like the mitochondria, they all have a surrounding membrane. But Balbiani body does not have any membrane. All these mitochondria somehow sit down together for many years in oocyte cytoplasm held by something. But then Buka says something happens. The key thing is Balbiani bodies are only present in dormant oocytes. The time the oocyte gets activated, the Balbiani body disappears. That inherently comes with this amyloid protein. Also, we get rid of it somehow without causing any damage to the cell. Buka is working to understand how these amyloid fibers assemble and dissolve. So we are working on exactly to uh, characterize what happens to this protein because it's not degraded. The protein is still there after activation, but it does not show amyloid-like features anymore. And the idea is that if we understand the physiological amyloids, like how we disassemble them, what leads to their disassembly or what kind of, I don't know, maybe you change the charge ratio of the protein somehow by adding phosphate groups or methyl groups or somehow. And can we learn from it to apply to the pathological amyloids? Because Alzheimer's disease and like neurodegenerative diseases, majority of them are pathological amyloids. That could lead to new strategies for treating neurodegenerative diseases or infertility. Protein aggregates can also solve problems that require very quick physiological responses, like stopping bleeding after an injury. For example, a certain type of fungal species has interconnected pressurized networks of root-like hyphae through which nutrients flow. Researchers at the Temasek Life Sciences Laboratory, led by evolutionary cell biologist Greg Jed, looked at them. The researchers injured the tip of a hypha. 
but they discovered the protoplasm gushed out at first, but almost instantaneously formed a gelatinous plug that stopped the bleeding. Jed suspected that the response was mediated by a long polymer, probably a protein with a repetitive structure. The researchers identified two candidate proteins and found that without them, injured fungi catastrophically bled out into a puddle of protoplasm. Jed and his colleagues studied the structure of the two proteins, which they called gelin A and gelin B. The proteins had 10 repetitive domains, some of which had hydrophobic amino acids that could bind to cell membranes. The proteins also unfolded at forces similar to those they would experience when the protoplasm comes gushing out at the site of an injury. The plug is triggered by a physical cue that causes gelin to transition from liquid to solid phase. It's irreversibly solidified. Jed says they think maybe the massive acceleration in flow after an injury is the trigger. In contrast, Jed and his team looked at the fungal species Neurospora. Neurospora is a cool fungus because it makes cells, but they're connected through these little pores. And so we've been interested in how those pores are opened and closed. And so what we discovered is some intrinsically disordered proteins that seem to be undergoing a condensation to kind of aggregate at the pore and to provide a mechanism for closing it. Jed's team learned that the Neurospora proteins that were candidates for this job had repeated mixed-charged domains that could be found in some mammalian proteins, too. When the researchers synthesized proteins of varying compositions, but with similar mixes of lengths and charge patterning, and introduced them into mammalian cells, they found that the proteins could be incorporated into nuclear speckles. These are condensates in the mammalian cell nucleus that help to regulate gene expression. Their findings were reported in a 2020 molecular cell paper. Here's Jed again. So that was kind of an interesting case where we went from one kingdom, the fungi, and transitioned into the animals. And so essentially these two kingdoms independently have arrived at a similar biochemical underlying mechanism of condensation, but they're using it for entirely different reasons. And in different compartments. Phase separation has turned out to be ubiquitous, and researchers have generated lots of ideas about how this phenomenon could be involved in various cell functions. Cell biologist Gary Carpin says it's interesting work. There's lots of exciting possibilities that it raises, and so that's what I think drives the excitement and the interest in the field is the possibilities. But Carpin also cautions that while it is relatively easy to show that a molecule undergoes phase separation in a test tube, demonstrating that phase separation has a function in the cell is much more challenging. Cliff Brangwen, who's now a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator at Princeton University, agrees that we still don't know very much. He says it's the early days for understanding how this all works. He says liquid phase separation may not be the driving force, but he thinks it probably is. But Brengwin says we don't know how it really works and how DNA gets involved. The uncertainties don't discourage biologist Anthony Hyman either. What phase separation is allowing everyone to do is go back and look at old problems which stalled out to think, oh, can we now think about them a different way? That doesn't mean the stuff done before was no good. It was fantastic, all the structural biology 
but many problems stalled out. They couldn't actually explain things. And that's what the face-over is allowed to allow everyone to think again about these problems. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Vivienne Collier's full article, A Newfound Source of Cellular Order in the Chemistry of Life, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Thank you.